doing something else, calm, cool. In fact, that's one of my favorite parts in uh, the movie of Titanic is we see these different ways of people respond in this life-threatening situation. I thought we would just watch just a small clip just to kind of get us in the mode. So let's, let's do it. amazing, right? The, the difference of people running and scattering and fighting and shoving and trying to get on those lifeboats and others doing what they love to do. There's actually been uh, some uh, written about uh, true real-life stories from uh, the Titanic where uh, the movie was taken from and uh, based on, and there is one true story which I love used it before, but I, I think it's worth repeating. It was a, a priest by the name of Father Thomas Biles that he actually led, according to some of the survivors, he led mass just before the Titanic struck the iceberg. 
And apparently some folks remembered his message. It was on not getting spiritually shipwrecked. And he said uh, he encouraged the people to use the life belts of prayer and the sacraments. It's reported that Father Biles was given two opportunities, because he was a priest, to, to get on one of the lifeboats. And he declined both of them, wanting to serve the best he could faithfully to the very end, and that's what he did. We're going to look at a, a story where, for at least Daniel, there, this was a life-threatening situation that he is put upon. He's put in. And the way he responds, I think, is, is tremendous and beautiful and, and informative and challenging for us. But even beyond that, I, I think that we get a glimpse uh, of the secret things uh, and ways in which Daniel lived in the day-to-day that prepared him for this crisis moment, prepared him for how he would respond in these moments. And I think we get, really, we've been looking at, um, through the book of Daniel, we're in chapter 6, if you've brought your Bibles, turn with me there, I'm going to read it on the screen. But we've been getting these glimpses of the character of David, of the integrity of, of Daniel, uh, of the integrity of Daniel. Uh, and his life. And, and I believe that Daniel was living what we call this kingdom life in this Old Testament context. That he was living life as God designed it and, and was inviting him to live. And also through the life of Daniel is inviting us to live. That he's giving us this beautiful life, a life well-lived, that, that we would be able to meet God in the day-to-day and then be prepared in those moments of crisis and difficulty. And I'm going to encourage you with three, what I would say, profound things that David did that seems that we have evidence in this chapter, as well as the rest of the book, that Daniel did that that really stamped his life. And I believe that the Lord wants to challenge us with these three ways of living. So let's turn to to chapter 6. Let me give you a a little bit of context. Is that now um, uh, chapter 4 and 5 transition still in the kingdom of uh, Babylon... And yet, the the king, uh, Belshazzar, was killed. His life was lost. And now the kingdom moves, or uh, the story, I should say, moves to the kingdom of the Persians and the Medes. And it's King Darius. So it's a new king, a new situation, and it's somewhat of a new context. Okay, but Daniel's role or administration transfers to King Darius. So if we pick it up at verse 6, it says, oh, and also I want to give you this little bit of context too, is that in chapter 6, I'm going to read most of the chapter, that I think that you can detect 
the presence of the Trinity in this chapter six, which is kind of cool. And there's a $50 gift card. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there's a free cup of coffee. If you, in it, if you get some of the more challenging ones, you, you'll see what I mean. So first, let me read the, the first couple of verses that set the context for us. Um, starting at verse one. So go back, Stephen, a little bit. There we go. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom, this new set, 120 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents, including Daniel. To these the satraps gave account so that the king might suffer no loss. Soon Daniel distinguished himself above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. So the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom, but they could not find they could find no grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful and no negligence or corruption could be found in him. The men said, we shall, not, uh, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Okay, so let's just pause there for a moment. So you've got a new king, this kingdom, and he appoints, um, he, uh, appoints a number of leaders, 120 satraps, um, to rule, and three, what uh, that translation calls presidents, um, or NIV calls them administrators over those. And there's some jealousy towards Daniel, that he's this foreigner, and he's given all this power and authority. So the other, some satraps and other presidents or administrators, they want to bring Daniel down in this new situation. They want to remove his power. But because of his work ethic, they can't find anything to accuse him of. So what they do, I'm going to give a little bit of a, a summation. They go to King Darius and say, hey, King, we have this awesome idea for 30 days. We're going to declare that people are to pray and worship only you no other God. And can you put it in writing and put your king's stamp on it so we're good to go? And King Darius is like, sure. But yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's, let's do that, okay? And so they set this up for Daniel. And then we'll pick up the story um, in verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published. Are we there? I'm going to read from a different translation. I'm having trouble seeing the, the board, so I'm going to... Um, is that a sign of age? Um, I'm going to just read from... So it's a slightly different translation. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day... He got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done 
before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they report this to the king. King Darius likes Daniel. He knows he's a good worker. He tries to get out of it, but because of the rules of the Persians and the Medes and the declaration, he can't. So he says, Daniel's got to face the consequence of violating this decree, which was the lion's den, right? So we pick up the story in uh, verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of the nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him as he could not sleep. So he's disrupted. He, he knows that these administrators, they, they kind of got the best of them. They manipulated it. And Daniel was caught in their plans and plots. Verse 19, at the first light of day, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. That's God showing off again, right? Uh, he throws the bad guys into the den of lions and they chew them up before their feet hit the ground. Look at verse 28. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. This is King Darius. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. All right, another beautiful, wonderful story from Daniel. Did you recognize the presence of the Trinity? First, the God the Father. That one, I, I think, is pretty evident. Yes, where do you see that? The very end of the verses where God is being celebrated by a pagan king for that he is a living God, he's eternal that he has dominion um, over all people, regardless of who's king. How about the sun? 
That's a little bit harder one to detect. Did you anyone see that? Free cup of coffee. It's a foreshadowing. What's that? Sent his angel? Not quite. Good guess. Anyone else? What's that? The stone. Yes. Look at verse 17. Does that remind you of ever, anyone? It says, A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring. Nice job, Pete. Free cup of coffee for you, my friend. All right, yeah. Just a, perhaps a little foreshadowing of Christ when he was put in the grave and a stone was pushed in front of it and then sealed with a signet ring. The Holy Spirit is also a little bit more challenging. Did you see that in the first couple of verses? Go back to uh, verses, uh, let's see, verse 3. Verse 3, it says, Now Daniel distinguished himself um, uh, because the Spirit was in him and the king planned to appoint him over the whole kingdom. This is a, a repetition that we see, and I would like to suggest it's one of the first distinguishing qualities of Daniel's life was that he was recognized as a spirit-filled person, that this was Daniel's reputation, even though they called it the spirit of the gods, oftentimes, like in Daniel 4, we see that it says, finally, Daniel came into my presence. Nebuchadnezzar is telling the story, and he says, I told him the dream. He is called Bel... Belshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. The, the King Nebuchadnezzar recognized a presence and a power of the divine in Daniel. And it's repeated a couple of times in Daniel 5. It says that the queen is telling the new king as you heard from Jedediah, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the holy gods. That was part of his reputation. That was what Daniel was known by. He was known for the wisdom and the intelligence of the divine, the, the spirit of God was in him. One of the key aspects of uh, living a spirit-filled life, and I try and go over this on a regular basis, is in the Old Testament, it was the leaders primarily that were empowered by the Holy Spirit. It was the kings, it was the, the prophets, Everybody had the Spirit, but it was the leaders that were empowered by the Spirit, like Daniel. In the New Testament, part of what makes the New Testament new is that there is a shift in the work of the Spirit in the lives of God's children. Do you know what that shift is? Look at your neighbor and say, it's you. You, you get to play. You get 
that not only the presence of the Spirit, but the power of the one true living God, His Spirit, if you are a Christian, you don't have to be a pastor or, or a priest or a ministry leader, you get the presence of the living God in your life. That gets to be, you can live such a way that, that that's a hallmark in your life. That God wants to do that. He wants to give, not just invite you into ministry, but empower you with his spirit. Daniel was living that reality in the midst of the Old Testament, in the midst of a foreign nation, not in Jerusalem. Paul's prayer, listen to Paul's prayer, it's not just for the leaders but it's for all of us, it says in Colossians 1.9, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. It's right from Daniel's life, right? They, they recognized the wisdom of God. They recognized the intelligence of God. They recognized God's spirit in Daniel, even though they called it sometimes spirit of the gods, the divine spirit in his life. And Paul goes on to say, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. If you want to live kingdom life, if you want to live a life that's worthy of God, worthy of the calling he has on your life, if you want to live the life that Jesus died for you to have, it's got to be filled with his spirit. Amen? Daniel models this for us. That's been a desire that I've prayed for myself and prayed for you as a congregation that we would be a people filled with God's presence and God's power. That we would be, not be a people that are trying to do it on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own insight, but that we would be a people, individuals, and a congregation that are seeking the will of God, the word of God, the voice of God, the power of God, the resources of the spirit of God to live how he calls us to live. And not just in times of crisis, but our daily life. That we would be living in that way in the day-to-day -day, so when the time comes when we're under stress, we again turn to God and say, Lord, help, give us wisdom. We're having these congregational meetings in part because the denomination that we're a part of is in, you could call it, a, a, a long period of crisis. We don't know what's going to happen. We're, we're unsure what that will look like. So we don't want to respond in our own wisdom, our own strength, our own insight, but we want to seek the Lord. Say, God, what do you... This is the key. I would say I have two questions that, that reshape and help me when I'm in moments especially of crisis or difficulty or struggle. These two questions are, 
God, what are you saying in this circumstance? And what are you doing in this circumstance? You see, then I I can learn, how, how would you have me speak into this? Or what would you have me hear? Am I supposed to repent of something? Am I supposed to help and serve alongside? Is there a place, is there a role that you have for me in this circumstance? So often in crisis, what do we do? We go, God, help! Don't you realize what's happening? And he's like, I, I, yes. In fact, I caused that. And I'm looking for people who would hear and understand. Reminds me when Jesus was on the boat and they're like, Jesus, wake up. We're going down, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, we're going to go down, right? Right in the middle of my ministry, but the father didn't realize that there was going to be a squall on the lake and we're, we're out. Oh, well, I'll try. Right, it's that, it's that saying, God, I, I trust that you're over every circumstance, Every difficult, the, the diagnosis, the, the strain at work, the, the, the relational dynamic, the struggle in the marriage. I trust you, God, that you're over all those things. And you're looking for those people to say, God, what are you doing? What, what are you saying in the midst of this? Holy Spirit, would you speak so I know? Would you help me to recognize your hands? So I know how I'm, I'm supposed to respond. Daniel, filled with the Spirit, trusting in the Lord. Daniel does not run around with his hair on fire in this circumstance. No, the lion's den. In fact, he does the opposite. What does Daniel do? Did you catch it? He prays, yes, but he prays just like he does every day. Three times a day, that free cup of coffee, surely. Yes, two times we're told in the scripture, and when something is repeated, oftentimes they want you to pay attention to that. Um, Look at uh, verses, look at verse 10. It says, Um, Now, when Daniel learned of the decree that had been published, he went screaming around the courtyard, No, he was not one of those on the Titanic. He went home to his upstairs room with the windows open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He didn't close the curtains. He didn't say, well, God, I'm just going to help. I'm just going to, I'm going to go in this other room where no one can see me. Do you think Daniel realized that this was a trap? He did. Did Daniel try and avoid the trap at all? Man, what a person of integrity. He just, he walks into it and he springs the trap and he trusts God for the results. 
It's a beautiful. I'd say not only does Daniel model a life that is spirit-filled, filled with the presence and power of God, but he's also modeling a life even beyond prayer, I would call it, which we talk about, these, these sacred rhythms of life. He was living in such a way that he'd pattern his life as a life in response to the living God. And even in the midst of danger and challenge and threat, he doesn't change that pattern. He just lived into those sacred rhythms. Some have suggested perhaps it was Psalm 55 that he was pattering, pattering, patterning, or whatever. Look at Psalm 55. Still on vacation a little bit, my brain is. As for me, I call to God and the Lord save me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. Do you know that that was a pattern that the early church also picked up? In fact, you see if you read over in the book of Acts, there's little... Uh, um, moments where people are praying at nine, at noon, and at three o'clock. Some people in the early church, like Peter, were praying in those moments. Uh, um, uh, it says um, in Acts 10, 9, about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Same time Cornelius was praying. And vision was happening. One of the first miracles of the early church was when Peter and John were walking to the temple at the time of prayer. That the early church knew something of a pattern or a rhythm of prayer that they were joining God in. Henry Nouwen said this about prayer. Which I like the, the paradox of prayer is that it asks for a serious effort while it can only be received as a gift. That, that there's effort, there's discipline. That's we call it spiritual discipline. And yet, at the same time, it's simply a gift from God. He goes on to say this, we cannot plan, organize, or manipulate God, but without careful discipline, we cannot receive him either. That yes, prayer is winsome and life-giving and, and there's a beauty we get to pray wherever, whenever we want. And yet at the same time, there's a testimony in Scripture. The saints in, in Old and New Testament, they lived in a pattern of prayer which is very different than how many of us live the Christian life today. That we're scattered or we're, we're simply living our life in response to the things that come to us day to day. Uh, what are our kids and when we need to get them to school, our, our work, when, when that's happening, when we have to be there and, when, and we're doing all these things, our, our, our plans, our, 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 our vacations, our entertainment, we do that and we're molding the rhythms of our lives to what's going on around us rather than 
saying, what would it look like if I allowed Jesus to dictate some of the patterns and the rhythms of my life? What if I lived into those rhythms and again, not living into discipline for discipline's sake, but living into discipline for what they lead to and what the disciplines are meant to lead to is the life that Christ died for us to have. You see what I'm saying? That's why when we do leadership development and apprentice huddles, the the second lesson that we cover is about sacred rhythms. What does it look like to fill our lives with sacred rhythms of reading scripture, of, of activities of prayer, of times of silence and solitude, times of Sabbath rest and renewal? What would it look like if rather than we allowed our cultural culture and responsibilities to dictate the rhythms of our lives, we allowed God to dictate those rhythms. I've shared that sometimes I really like uh, testimonies of people giving their lives to Christ, especially when they uh, relate to the message. There's a story of John Wesley, and he was actually coming from England to America. He was on an Anglican missionary trip, and he was on this boat not the Titanic, but they had somewhat of a Titanic experience that, um, that all of a sudden uh, the, the, uh, the waves came up and it was a life-threatening situation. And this terrible storm was threatening to wreck the ship. Well, there was English there, but there was also a group of, from Germany called the Moravians. Some of you know the Moravians. They have an interesting history. They're kind of the first of the Reformation. They were wrestling with some of the things of the Reformation before Luther or John Calvin or some of those, uh, those things. And they were a very committed group of folks. And they were on the ship as well. And John Wesley, he's again a missionary going from the UK to America. And he writes this in his journal later. He says, um, a terrible storm developed at sea, and there was an, we were in danger of being shipwrecked, the Moravians were in the midst of a worship service and praising God. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the main sail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great, uh, if the, as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. They were running around with their hair on fire. The Germans, talking about the Moravians, calmly sung on. He writes, I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And he said, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. That had such a profound impact 
on John Wesley's life. Remember, he was going as a missionary. And he recognized that they had something that he did not. And he begins to pursue. He goes, does the mission, returns. And then he begins to pursue this, this deeper, more intimate walk with the Moravians. He befriends a, a bishop. And then he tells this story. It's, he says on Wednesday, May 24th, I think this was 1736, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a, side, uh, to a society in Aldersgate Street, a Moravian meeting where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistles to Romans. About a quarter to nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That famous line, strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation and felt assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. But how cool that a missionary recognized something different about these lives, these ordinary Christians, that they, they had something, they had this, this confidence and this faith that even in these most life-threatening situations, they responded with a trust in what God was doing and how he was working. I want to live in those sacred rhythms. In fact, that's been one of my biggest areas of growth in the last couple of years, is that I've tried to say, what would it look like if I began to build in sacred rhythms of prayer and of scripture, of silence and solitude and of rest? And God has met me in the midst of those sacred rhythms. I'm, I'm cautious. I don't want to do them legalistically, but I want to do them so that whether it's high points or low points in my life, I'm clinging to those sacred rhythms for the security and the faith that God provides and meets me in those things. There's a, a, a third aspect of Daniel's life that I think is as equally as powerful. Look at verse 4 with me. Again, it says, at this the administrators, presidents, and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So interesting that twice, again, pay attention to repetition. Look at verse 16, the latter part. King Darius says this to Daniel. He's like, Daniel, I'm sorry, I can't get you out of this. And he says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Look at verse 
20. says, Daniel calls into the lion's den, servant of the living God, has your God who you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? A little bit of repetition going on there. This was yet another hallmark of Daniel's good and beautiful life. That he was known not only as a a spirit-filled leader, he not only pressed into the sacred rhythms of life, but he served with, with, with diligence and focus and consistency. No corruption. They had to come up with this like pretend pray only to King Darius because they couldn't find anything else. So that, boy, wouldn't that be great if someone had to use your own integrity because they couldn't find anything else to blame you for? Wouldn't that be great? To to serve in that way. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Daniel was living the biblical wisdom of life. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions. Listen to Paul's encouragement in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There was that consistency, that service. I was thinking of my own dad who passed away a number of years ago. And his work ethic was beautiful, and I was able to learn and grow and be challenged by him. At the funeral, at the memorial service, um, he used to serve, did a number of positions. He was a counselor, licensed clinical social worker, but also he, he trained um, uh, in the area of foster care from the foster care agency. And um, I was told this at the memorial service, uh, the, the day that he died, that it was lost, the, the foster care agency staff, they showed up for a training that he had scheduled. And he didn't show up. He had passed away um, uh, at our house. And they immediately called the hospitals, the surrounding hospitals. And the reason they immediately called the hospitals was because of his work ethic. They knew if Alan Carpenter didn't show up, there was something off. There was something wrong with that. And you know, it wasn't just the way he worked his job, but the way he served the church as well. That there was an engagement in the church life, whether it was you know teaching Sunday school to the fifth and sixth graders, which he loved uh, so much, whether it was serving in, in, in a leadership role on the consistory, there was a faithfulness and a diligence that was there. I think there was so much power 
power in Daniel's life, a life well lived. That he was modeling for us pre-incarnation and resurrection. He was modeling for us this beautiful life in God, in the Lord. Allowing to live faithful, empowered lives with the presence of God. If there is one aspect of those three that the Lord is speaking to you about, I've learned that if I try and add more than one discipline at a time, that it doesn't go well. I I peter out really fast. But if there was one aspect of Daniel's life that we see in chapter 6, inviting the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, listening, asking, Lord, what are you saying and what are you doing? Would that be the aspect that he would be challenging you on? Or is it the aspect of sacred rhythms? Leading a few leaders through this idea of sacred rhythms, I said, I asked, what's the rhythms that you live your life? And one leader said, I have no rhythms. I just react to kids and work and responsibilities and needs. Would adding some of those sacred rhythms, even just one, a rhythm of prayer or Bible study or Sabbath, Or maybe it's just diligent service. Maybe you just work your job and serve your family. But there's no additional, there's no this, I am serving the kingdom of God in my work, in my family, and in my church. It's just coincidence. I would have loved to say that I planned the ministry fair (laughs) sign-ups. On this Sunday, I'm just not that good. But it's the Holy Spirit, right? What's that aspect that he's calling you to? Would you pray with me? I like to just give us time. It's between you and the Lord. Would you go over, maybe look at the outline? What's the Lord saying to you this morning? And he loves you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what you need. Doesn't condemn doesn't push away, but he dares to draw you close. Would you talk to him about what is he saying right now? in your life. If the the prayer leaders would want to come up, if you want to 
You just pray about this between you and the Lord. You can ask fellow Christians, those who are journeying alongside you, to pray in particular for one of those things. Or maybe there's something else he's speaking to you about that's unrelated to But would you take a moment just to speak to him about that?